When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I'm Megan Murphy, host of The Same Drugs. I'm here to have conversations. Real, honest, authentic conversations. The kind we aren't supposed to have anymore. I interview anyone I find interesting, from left to right to everywhere in between. I work independently in order to have the freedom to say what I believe and speak to whoever I want. Staying independent has allowed me to speak freely and to tell the truth, no matter how unpopular, for many years now. And I wouldn't trade that for anything. We have seen over the last few years how deeply compromised big media is and how willing mainstream journalists are to twist facts and hide the truth to sell a narrative. I opted out of mainstream media and a traditional career path for a reason. I want to come to my own conclusions and not be compromised by financial, political, ideological, or corporate limitations. I refuse to trade my integrity or my free speech for a paycheck. But that means I need your help. I rely on donors and patrons, so individuals, to support my work so that I can continue to do what I do. If you appreciate the kinds of conversations we're having at The Same Drugs, wish to support my work and access full video interviews, a great way to do that is by becoming a subscriber on Patreon, that's patreon.com slash Megan Murphy, or on Substack at meganmurphy.ca, where subscribers can be sure not to miss a single episode, can access subscriber-only video content, and engage with the comment sections, subscriber-only chats and AMAs, and can keep up with my writing as well. You can, of course, follow the podcast on Spotify and support The Same Drugs directly there by clicking the support button on The Same Drugs podcast page. And finally, don't drink the Kool-Aid. You may have seen me in a very stylish shirt with that very timeless message online, and you can get your very own at our Same Drugs store, which you can find by going to www.meganmurphy.ca and clicking the shop tab. Thank you so much for supporting Conversations Outside the Algorithm. In this episode, we hear from Gord McGill, a Canadian trucker living in the U.S., and Trish Wood of the Trish Wood is Critical podcast, both of whom have been covering the Coots 4 case and the trucker convoy more broadly. During our conversation, which aired live on YouTube on Thursday, February 8th, one of the remaining Coots 4, Tony Olievec, serendipitously calls Gord from prison, and we were able to speak with him directly. 
The audio comes from Gord holding his cell phone up to the mic, so it's hard to hear in places, but amazing nonetheless. You'll also hear Gord's young daughter pipe up in places as she came into the room during our stream, lest you wonder what the garbled baby sounds are. Without further ado, Gord and Trish in our conversation about the Coots 4, now the Coots 2, as two of the four have been released from prison just this week. Hi, everyone who's tuned in to this last minute live. I'm really excited to be here with the wonderful Trish Wood and Gord McGill, among the only few people in Canada who have been covering the Coots, sto- Coots 4 story and um, generally trying to get the, the real word about Canada out into the, the Ethernet. Um, seeing as the mainstream media has failed to do its job. I always say failed and think like that's not the right word because they're doing it on purpose. <laughs> it's like they're yeah. not they're not just like, oops, we forgot to do our jobs. Yeah. No, they they are they are doing their jobs exactly as they're being paid <laughs> to do them. Yeah, right, exactly. I just watched I just watched your interview, Gord, with Tucker, um and I was glad to see that he was calling all canadian media not just the cbc state media yeah well they are right because of all the subsidies they've gotten and the fact you know they've proven that they're unwilling to engage in any meaningful way with the serious issues that are involved especially with this coot story but with so many others because they're not going to bite the hand that feeds it and they're not going to upset their masters in the sort of Laurentian elite that really run the country. Yeah, I mean that was that was a really great interview. Um, like beyond that, you chose a very Canadian outfit of flannel and flannel. <laughs> I actually, I actually brought a couple of different outfits. I wasn't sure, so I wasn't sure like how formal it was supposed to be. So I like I, right. I brought. Um, like a sort of outfit that I wear to weddings, like a white shirt with a black vest and like black, you know, nice pants. And I, I was at this sort of hotel in the little time near the little tiny town where Tucker lives and mm-hmm. where his studio is located in Maine. And I, I brought all these clothes. So I like took selfies of myself in the hotel room and texted them to his manager or his, uh, <laughs> his producers. I'm like, what do you think? What should I wear? And I had the sort of, you know, plaid on plaid number. And they said, that's great. Wear that. It'll match the surrounds of his office. So awesome. I loved it. I feel like Tucker is getting it exactly what's going on in Canada. And it's, I mean, it's amazing that he picked up on this story. Um, and it was, you know, he, he straight out called Trudeau not just an authoritarian but a sociopath and yeah i think that that what we're seeing happen right now is i i hope what's happening like i sort of wanted to name this stream like trudeau's convoy reckoning and i've been sort of implying that he's being held to account but remains to be seen how true that is and of course Trishwood is a longtime old school journalist who left the mainstream to forge out on her own. I left the media to do primarily true crime and justice reporting for about mm-hmm. 10 years. 
and um, had built a really good career. I just come off an Amazon Studios five part series and it was like, yay, okay, I made it in Hollywood <laughs> and was expecting to do more of those and in fact was offered more. And then COVID hit and um, based on how it was being talked about and covered and the things that Fauci was saying and doing, given that I've covered him before in the 80s during the COVID crisis and had limited respect for him then, if any, um, I, I, I really didn't know what to do. I, I sent a letter to a journalist in March of 2020, an American journalist saying, here's what's going to happen. It's wrong. They've got the infection fatality rate wrong. Tony Fauci is a bit of a scoundrel. La, 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 la. And of course, I didn't hear back. I mean, it's some chick from Canada, right? Why do they care what I think? But I didn't know what else to do. Because I had no, I didn't even have social media then, right? I had nothing. I had no way to communicate what I knew and what my fears were. Um, so I started, my kids said, why don't you start a podcast? And I was like, what's that? That's just kind of like radio you put on the internet, right? I mean, I didn't really know. What year was this? It went, well, it was March of 2020 is when I started worrying. Okay, right. The year, the month that they, they instituted the lockdowns and the podcast was up and running in, by May. And I focused almost exclusively on COVID-19 for a very long time right? and covered a lot of the, you know, early, like the, the great Barrington people and Jay Bhattacharya, I knew they were right. And that Johnny Anitas was right. And that they had a whole bunch of stuff wrong. And, and the thing I think that drove me and that drives me still, which is why I have not kind of left this penury and complete poverty of podcasting to go back to a more lucrative life is number one, the people who work in documentaries in my old world now are pretty woke and left wing and I mm -hmm. couldn't bear to be around them in a professional way. Mm -hmm. But the other issue is that um, I, I, I just sort of felt like I, I had a story to tell and the story that really underpins everything I've done, including this, it's sort of in a way how I met Gord because he has a bit of a, he has the same shaped heart that I do. Like he does view, he's kind of a tough guy, but he does view the world through a very humanist lens. Right. And, um, the thing about COVID that bothered me was the cruelty of what they were doing. It wasn't, yeah. just, they were wrong and stupid. It's that the lockdowns were killing people. Teenagers were committing suicide. Vaccines were not going to work and everybody was losing their jobs and, and all that stuff. And I thought, wow, these people are really mental. Like this is, how can they be so cruel? Why do they not care about the people they're harming. So there was that kind of unrelenting commitment to figuring out what was wrong with the elite class. And, and so that is kind of a theme of what I've stayed doing. And certainly the, um, the dissolution of the Freedom Convoy in Ottawa and, and obviously the, the kind of hostage taking of the Coots Four by the federal government right. drives into that because there is a cruelty around what they've done through everything that's happening and, and I, I mean, try to get at that in whatever. Yeah, like it was I just think that everything that's happened, including I mean the entire response, all the lockdowns included, never mind then what happened to the convoy and now what's mm. happened to the Coots Four was an attack on the working class. And so totally. To my mind, yeah, the Trudeau government, as well as, of course, the NDP and the entire Canadian media, um, and then the, the elitists who are supporting and, and going along with all of this and, mm. and voting for NDP, voting for Trudeau, um, 
Yeah. I think they all hate the working class too. Absolutely. Um, okay. So first of all, for those who have not followed this story or haven't seen the news, I assume that a lot of people watching have seen the news, but what's happened now is that two of the four men who were arrested in February, 2022 in Coots, Alberta, um, they were they were accused of conspiracy to commit murder and mischief and two have been released from prison they were i believe you can elaborate on this a bit gourd but they were they were sort of made to plead guilty to some um firearms charges yeah so what happened is that um very early on tuesday there was supposed to be pre-trial hearings right so their actual trial hasn't begun yet this week, starting on Tuesday, pre-trial motions will be and hearings will be taking place in Lethbridge at Court of King's Bench. Um, right off the bat, uh, the proceedings kind of got off to quite a start because the Crown, outside of court, had offered these guys a plea deal. Like, basically immediately on Tuesday. It might have even been in motion on Monday night. I'm not 100% sure on that. And what's interesting about it is that the gun charges for which they both signed off and, and, and they're not plea deals. These are false confessions. Mm -hmm. um, they're, they're two years in jail, no bail, separated from their families, separated from their lives over absolute nonsense. This is not these are not plea deals. These are extracting false confessions. Let's call it what it is. But the charges on which they confessed weren't the ones that they were initially charged with at all, right? And something that's interesting that people should know, when all four guys were arrested, I mean, they were all arrested separately over the course of two days, and none of them were charged with this conspiracy to murder police officers thing until a day or two later, after the Emergencies Act was called, was invoked. So, like, the sort of political angle on here has been baked into it from the start and so they, they they sign these plea deals these you know false confessions and the crown basically vaporized the uh the charges for plotting to you know conspiring to murder police officers right so like from the start these charges were always fake there was never anything to them and the crown knew it and something else that happened before these pre-trial hearings is that uh, the defense counsel had been upgraded. They brought in a couple of specialty lawyers, um, one whose specialty is in warrants and another with wiretaps. And the, you know, the warrants that the RCMP used for seizing all of those guns from that famous photo did not specify that they were allowed to take the guns. So that was going to be dismissed from evidence. And then a bunch of the stuff around the wiretaps and what the government claimed those guys said was also dodgy, not backed up. And you'll remember that there was a publication ban. The original publication ban on this case came because the media were repeating unsubstantiated allegations by the RCMP and the Crown, right? So the judge looked at these allegations and said, yeah, you're never going to get a fair trial or get a fair pool of jurors if this is circulating in the media. Because most of this stuff, there's nothing to it, and it seems unlikely it would be proven in court anyway, so they put on this ban. So it's been very questionable from the beginning that 
these guys were guilty of anything that they were charged with. Mm-hmm. And the Crown just proved it. They just said, hey, conspiracy to murder police officers. I oh, don't worry about that. We're good. So the most serious charge and the thing that everyone's been focusing on and that, you know, was a pivot point, hinge point, I should say, for Justice Rulo's POEC ruling, this, you know, a potential violence, murder of police officers, it was vaporware. There was nothing to it ever. And they just admitted it by throwing it out. Okay, guys, you can go now. And nobody in the media bothered their butts to investigate that. Like, so, you know, CTV, CBC, they all ran their little pieces the other day saying, oh, yeah, these guys pled guilty to lesser gun charges. But, like, nobody asked the question. Conspiracy to murder police officers is a pretty serious, pretty serious charge. Yeah. Um, by by what? Did, what how, how is it you're dismissing them? What happened? Nobody asked these questions. It was just like it almost never happened. So, like, this this weird conspiracy of silence around this case that the media engaged in even continued in the little reporting they gave Lysak and Morin's release because these big questions you're supposed to ask as a journalist, you're supposed to be skeptical of state power. You're supposed to ask these hard questions involving these serious charges, this huge case, the invocation of the Emergencies Act hinges on it. Nothing. Nobody's asked the question. I mean, I did. Mocha did. Trish would have. Right. But the the fourth estate, like our institutional mainstream media, like complete and utter lack of curiosity about why these charges just disappeared. Like, come on, right. people. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's why. Why did these? Why were these two not all four? There's still two guys in jail, but these two um, were. I just want to get their names right. Chris Lysak and Jerry Morin. Um, so these two were released. Tony Olenek um, and Chris Carbert. And Chris Carbert are still in prison. So, uh, I mean, I think that all three of us and probably others have speculated that these two were released because of your Tucker Carlson interview, because he covered the story. But also, I wonder if it's connected to the recent court decision determining that Justin Trudeau's invoking of the Emergencies Act was obviously unconstitutional, but also without legal precedent. I mean, why now? And why just these two? Well, on those two points, um, the the Emergencies Act being ruled illegal has very little purchase on uh, the Coots guys or any of the other cases. Remember, there's dozens of these people still being uh, persecuted in court with like the mischief and intimidation and all these stupid charges they got, including Tamara Lich and Chris Barber. Mm-hmm. Um, another little untold story in the media is that protesters who are in Ottawa were charged with you know, the silly offenses, mischief, intimidation, failing to follow a police order. A lot of those people went to court and were acquitted. And now their acquittals are being appealed and they're being dragged back to court a second time. All right. It's the, the vindictiveness of these people is incredible. But anyways, the all of these charges happened under the criminal code. They didn't need the Emergencies Act, which proves they didn't need the Emergencies Act. All of these charges and all these court cases are still going to go forward, regardless of that uh, ruling, because it was done under the crim- regular cr- regular old criminal code, right? Mm-hmm. And as far as Tucker goes, I did a tweet thread on this this morning. 
There's mm-hmm. been lots of speculation about that and people sending me messages like, hey, man, you got them out. And I'm like, well, maybe. But, like, there's no doubt that um, Mr. Carlson in his presentation in Calgary and, like, basically dropping it in uh, Danielle Smith's lap, hey, you've got political prisoners in your own province here. Like, what are we going to do about this? That may have embarrassed them some. Maybe it moved the needle with some things. But I, I believe that what went on this week was downstream of the upgrade in lawyers and that the crown knew that their case was going to get turned into mincemeat. So mm. maybe it was a little bit of Tucker and a little bit of the crown finally going, we have no case here and that's going to be made public in these hearings. So let's like preemptively do something to save face. That's my theory. I could be wrong, but that's, that's my take on it. Um, I, want to know what you think trish i was just want to let everyone know actually that gord is magically back on twitter <laughs> so if you're on there follow him at gord mcgill um hopefully he gets to stay um trish what do you think well i i mean as for the tucker thing and mosley um i, I mean i i don't think that the tucker thing directly made anybody do anything but i i do think that it did enter the zeitgeist in a way that, um, especially on the tales of the Mosley decision, it kind of changes the DNA of the, ju- the judiciary when they're seeing that people are starting to say critical things about them outside of the, the kind of alternative media. And I think the Mosley thing would have too. I don't, I think Gord's right to technically say it might not affect the the trials of Chris and Tamara, for instance, but but it does sink in in other ways. And we saw that during COVID because we were losing all kinds of cases during COVID, right? We couldn't win an anti-vaccine case at all. And mm. Bruce Party explained to me, and it was quite a startling thing to realize because I, I was a much more faithful. I mean, I, I look, I've done a million wrongful dismissal or wrongful conviction cases. I got a guy out of prison for a murder he didn't commit. So I know them well. I've done whole shows on them. But you still believe that judges like Mosley um, will rule based on the facts without fear or favor, right? And what Bruce Party told me is that judges and courts are as vulnerable to what's happening in the zeitgeist in the community culturally as anybody else is. And that that is why we were initially losing all those cases during COVIDian times, right? Where I, I was watching that and saying, wow, we are screwed as a democracy because every single institution has failed and now the courts can't get us out either and we're being ruled by a bunch of public health bureaucrats who don't have a clue what they're doing. And that was my dark period. And actually, when I was interviewing um, Gord for the film we're doing about Tamara Leach and Chris, I got a bit weepy recounting that story to him even in a question because that was when I realized we were losing all the cases and we had no hands anymore on the levers of democracy because of that. That's when I knew we were well and truly sunk into an authoritarian place. And I was very, mm-hmm. very depressed and having quite dark thoughts as Jeffrey Tucker of Brownstone was too right about that time. So that got to a lot of people. But just getting back to your question about Tucker and, and Mosley and the zeitgeist, the other thing that happened here, as I understand it, is that this new lawyer who sounds like a pretty clever chap uh, was filing for a Section 8, which means that the Crown has to open its kimono, right? They were going to be asked to provide some kind of evidentiary discovery oh. to the defense. 
And that's okay. when you can't BS around. But if you think about it, and this is why I think Gord's take on it is so smart, and it's true. This means that they didn't have enough on them very likely from the beginning. Because what if you if you walk it back, what what's happened here? They've withdrawn a really, really serious charge, right? The charge that underpinned everything, media, EA, how the country saw them. It put a very bad tone on the photographs of the guns, which were maybe faked anyway, as I understand. I mean, and it, it justified exactly the way that Trudeau and the media were trying to vilify the convoy as, ter as dangerous terrorists. But which, absolutely. You know, but, so, so, but you want to know why are they withdrawing the charge? They don't have mm -hmm. to tell you. But if you look at the in the criminal code and, and the, the literature in the Crown Law Office about these things, a murder charge has to be taken to court for a couple of reasons. One of them is that it's in the public interest to do so, number one. And number two, because the Crown and the police feel that they have a probable chance of a conviction. Th those are the two reasons. So one would assume mm. that withdrawal is for the same reasons, right? Obviously, they're not. If it if they do believe that police were about to be killed, then it's not in the public interest to withdraw it. So then, what is the other thing? The other thing, the other clause in that is that they have a likely chance of winning. So they didn't think they could win. And my mm -hmm. question, and these are the questions that must be answered in some form. And I don't know what the forum is because I'm not sure the Crown has to tell us unless there's an inquiry. I'm not sure. I tried. I tried today to reach out to lawyers I knew and I wasn't able to do it. Clay Ruby, who's an old friend, sadly died a couple of years ago. He's the guy who used to call for legal advice on this stuff. I don't know how, unless there is a civil suit and the plea deal may preclude a civil suit by the, the lads to try to recoup some money for their the losses because two years, even on those gun charges, seems ridiculous, right? But how are we going to get the information about the Crown's thinking? That should be our next goal. My question is also, aside from when did you change your mind about being able to win this, if you ever thought you could win it, if there was ever actually any evidence, but what communications existed between Ottawa and the people on the ground who were looking at these charges and the Crown Law Office that was going to lay the charges, was there an instruction? Was there kind of collaboration between the two? I mean, if you look at what was said around the time, and I have something I'll bring up in a minute after Gord can have a whack at this, but about what they said about Coots and the, the Emergencies Act and the testimony that was given there, it's very, very clear that there was some kind of communication. And um, and one wonders then if there was that communication and it turns out that this was really uh, kind of a fallacious uh, charge, then what was the communication? Like, was someone lying to Ottawa? Was Ottawa lying to them? What were they saying they had as some evidence? I, there is in an article, I'll dig out and clarify this, but there was some communication that these were like fringe people who were armed to the teeth, which probably right. Gord takes us to the hate gate story in a sense, doesn't it? Would they have been accusing them of that that early on in this thing? And could it have been that plus the guns or what do you think? It very well could have been because they were making all this noise about Diagalon and yeah, yeah, yeah. The, 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 the hate gate thing, it, it's just such a, it's a sidebar, but like it, we're talking according, about the anti-hate network. Yeah. So yeah, according yeah. to, you know, the families and advocates and especially Jacqueline Martin, who we had on your show, Trish, 
you know, they want to make it extremely clear that like they had nothing to do with Diagon. Jerry Morin had no idea who they were. Tony Olianek had no idea who they were. Only one of the four of them had even heard of Jeremy McKenzie before everything happened with the Freedom Convoy. But the Canadian Anti-Hate Network, who are paid by the government to tell them what they want to hear, yeah. made this huge noise about Diagon, lied their butts off, said they were like this arm to the hilt um, group that was like revolutionary or going to you know take over the government and establish an ethno state. And yeah. then it turns out that it's a guy with a podcast and it's all a joke. And the podcast says things that anti-hate doesn't like. Right. I might not agree with what Jeremy McKenzie says, whatever, but like, you don't, you don't shut the whole country down under an emergency measures act over a guy's podcast. (laughs) That's effectively (laughs) what they did. Yeah. And and because, and because Canada anti-hate like made this spurious connection to the coots guys and the government fell for it. Mm, I think Canadian anti-hate network needs to get hauled in. I think everybody, Everybody involved with this whole um, making Diagon an enemy of the state, they all need to get hauled in yeah. because look at what they did. They turned this into a scare story that resulted in a bunch of people getting arrested. You know? And the anti-hate network, Sorry, I just, for, no, I just want to clarify for people who are listening yes. that might not be Canadian or not familiar with the anti-hate network, which are, you know, a total joke, but they're funded by the government. And as, it's like as the Southern was... Poverty Law Center for our American mm, viewers. Right. You know, and my, I, I have a shout out to one of the boys on the Good Old Boys podcast, Merrick. He came up podcast. with the, he came up with the best line. He calls them the Northern Poverty Law Center. Yeah. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's good. Okay. Yeah. So that's that's what they are. Let me. So I just unearthed this little little gem here, and I just boy, these are oldie but goodies. When you go back and look at this contemporaneous, okay. During the inquiry, Public Safety Minister Marco Mendocino said the head of the RCMP shared with him sensitive police information on February 13th, the day the act was invoked. Quote, she underlined for me that the situation in Coots involved a hardened cell of individuals armed to the teeth with lethal firearms who possessed a willingness to go down with the cause, Mendocino said of his conversation with Commissioner Brenda Lucky. Wow. Well, hey, you know, anybody remember the Porta Peak massacre in Nova Scotia a few years back? Mm-hmm. And then the investigation into that, that crazy yep. shooting. Yeah. And the investigation revealed that Trudeau and the gang were up to their eyeballs interfering with Brenda Lucky because mm-hmm. they wanted to extract political capital out of that to pass new gun legislation. So there was okay. interference from the top. So there's a history with Trudeau and Lucky, you know, either Trudeau telling her that, like, you're going to do what I need you to do, like, as interference, or maybe they were working together. I mean, Brenda Lucky's gone now, but I I would love to see, like, Trish is right. There needs to be an investigation into what went on with these guys, right? And a point I want to get across to anybody listening in Canada is that, you know, let's, let's zoom in on what actually happened here. These four guys got picked up at Coots because it was a disfavored protest. They're considered enemies to the state and they got thrown in jail for two years on bogus charges. We now know those charges are bogus because Mm -hmm. the crown just like poofed. They disappeared. What does this mean? This means that in Canada, the government, whenever it feels that they don't like you, can pick you up (laughs) in custody, put you in jail, 
accuse you of things of which there is no evidence whatsoever, um, make you guilty in the court of public opinion, say the most heinous things about you, get the country to hate your guts, lock you away for two years, and then just be like, oh, nothing happened. Yeah. Where, right. where, you- where does freedom of speech, where does freedom of association, where does freedom to protest go under those conditions when the government can get away with what they just did to the coots guys? I want people to think hard about that and think about your democracy, given what just happened. Yeah, right. And- exactly. Like, and, and, you know, people, I think that the middle and upper classes in Canada, the elites, the progressives, they, um, they well, yeah, but they, they still want to pretend as though all is well, that we live in a democracy. And, you know, this is what Gord is describing is authoritarianism, yeah. it's fascism, yeah. it's a police state. And these people who, again, support the NDP, support the liberal party, probably supported all the mandates, didn't give a shit what was happening to the working class in the meantime. I've never heard about this coot case, coots case, and if they did, would probably make excuses and go along with the original media narrative. I mean, they're the ones who are, you know, calling not, you know, I'm not in love with Trump by any means, but calling Trump a fascist. These ones are the, these are the people yeah. who are hyperbolic and who probably called the convoy fascist, you know, dangerous, white supremacist, violent terrorists. And meanwhile, what what's going on right in front of their faces, which the whole world can see, but not, you know, I, I so many Canadians are getting angry. I shouldn't say not the people in Canada, because, you know, Canadians across the board, I think, are turning on Trudeau at this point. But oh, yeah. there's still there's still a class of people who who don't see it, who who don't want to see it, who think there's, that there's an awful lot of projection Canada. with these people calling the Freedom Convoy fascists. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, their their critical thinking faculties are gone. Right. So the, the, a lot of that hinges on, you know, Nazi flag guy in Ottawa. And it's so right. interesting that all of these convoys came from all across the country, from all different directions. And none of these flags showed up until Ottawa. Yeah. Who is in Ottawa? It's a town full of spooks and government operators. Right. Two years since Freedom Convoy, we still don't know who Nazi flag guy is. They just couldn't figure it out, I guess. They just couldn't figure it out, I guess. <laughs> well, not like, only that, he showed up for five minutes long enough to have his picture taken, and then he disappeared. I mean, that was sort of stupid. Right, right. but I mean, if CSIS can't find this guy, that, speak, that says one of yeah. two things. CSIS are incompetent and not very good at their jobs. Or Nazi flag guy was one of their own and known to them and they can't yeah. say it. Yeah. Right. Th- those mm-hmm. are your only two options, guys. Pick one. Yeah. Well, I think the I idea interrupted that... you. Yes. Yeah, oh, that's ahead, okay. Jared. No, I just wanted I to say that the it. idea yeah. that this was a class struggle mm-hmm. um, is, is a pretty important one. But I think the larger, the, the larger, and maybe the largest, I don't know if they're both equal, but, you know, if you look at the pillars of democracy, right, it's the judiciary and government and it's the media. And the media became an arm of the state during the Freedom Convoy, right? They delivered rumors. And the rumors that they delivered were then, it was kind of like Russiagate. Then they were circled back uh, into official channels to become like a true thing in the documents that they were using. And then you ask them and they say, oh, well, no, I saw that on the CBC. So, oh, you didn't supply the information. No, 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 we're we're just, you know. So, So the media were all in on on the plan by the government to bring the freedom convoy to to heal and that is not a small thing i've been saying since i started my podcast in 
2020, that everything wrong in the world right now is as a result of not having a neutral fact-finding objective media. The powers that be in the elites know they can get away with anything. I mean, look at what they're getting away with. I mean, they've got two wars going on. Hunter Biden laptop was there for the taking and they quashed it. They're trying to jail a president who could beat the, uh, you know, the incumbent who's a demented, warmongering ass. And in this country, you know, one of the most divisive, incompetent and dim-witted uh, prime ministers we've ever had. And he hangs on and hangs on like a bad <laughs> cold. So, so something's failing us. And, and, and you know exactly what I'm saying, because if we had still had the old school media, not that my time was, I'm not one of those old farts who says everything was better, when I, but the media was better in the olden days when I was doing it. Um, we would never have let him get away with what he's getting away with. Now, they don't even scrum these guys anymore in a meaningful way. You know, the only people scrumming is rebel news who jump out of, you know, potted palms at people, which they should do with the camera rolling. So it's the media that allowed this And get arrested for doing it. And get arrested. But then I just want to say part two of that is I worked at the Fifth State where we did investigative stuff. And the Coots 4 is a classic Fifth Estate story. In the sense that we did stories about the RCMP's Mr. Big scam, where they would lure people into committing crimes and then charge them, which was a huge scandal. They've got a history of doing these kinds of things. And so, and, and, and yet the only show on the Fifth Estate that I saw was a kind of a profile of Pat King, you know, this kind of poor you know, least popular, says dodgy things guy who wasn't representative of the convoy at all. And he may be a really decent bloke. I don't know him, but he says stuff that is a bit icky. But but so what? I mean, they set him up in the piece like he's some kind of a white supremacist nutcase. And I'm not sure there's any evidence for that at all. When they could have gone after and had on their show Tamara Leach, who is a temperate, competent, honorable woman who helped lead a very kind of difficult organization full of, you know, men and trucks and stuff and road captains and everything. And, and, uh, and, and Chris Barber, who is one of the most decent human beings I've ever met, but that's not what the fifth estate did. They picked the controversial guy and tried to frame the whole convoy around whatever Pat's problems are if he even have has any i don't know right well so i'm 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 old enough too to remember you know the battle in seattle and the sort of left's fights against you know the international monetary fund and the world trade organization and all these meetings and like they were against globalism and at all of these protests they had back in the day these black block guys would show up and nobody knew who they were. Maybe, yeah. you know, maybe they were agent provocateurs of the state. But the yeah. sort of organizers of the protests would always say, yeah, don't judge us and our concerns by these guys that are smashing windows. Mm-hmm. You know, turnabout yeah. is fair play, but we didn't get any. So they hung Pat King out That's to dry. True. That is true. That right. Is true. And they You're fixate right. on this flag. Yeah. And it's like millions of people across Canada supported this thing. Yeah. It was ultimately shown that there was zero violence on anyone's part. Yeah. And like all they don't extend us the same credit. And to your point about the fifth estate coot story, like nobody asked any questions about these guys. They were mm-hmm. made to be the scapegoats for Trudeau's invocation of the Emergency Measures Act. Yep. They were they were the guys, mm-hmm. and that's it. We're putting them in jail and forgetting about them. Yeah. Right? It's like, totally level stuff. 
Pravda, it's absolutely Pravda. And, and let me just tell you an interesting thing about the Fifth Estate. The story that we did to get Clayton Johnson out of jail in Nova Scotia for not killing his wife um, was very interesting because the Fifth Estate was also the reason, one of the reasons he went to jail. She died. She fell down the stairs, just like the Stairfall documentary, uh, that, so the nine-hour one. Um, and then she, he was not charged and shouldn't have been because it was clear it had been an accident. There was a whole hue and cry in the community about rumors that he was having an affair and his new wife he was sleeping with when, when Janice was still alive. All this garbage was happening. And, um, and so the Fifth Estate got caught up in kind of lobbying around that Clayton was a murderer, right? And, and he was charged and convicted based on super, super dubi dubious uh, forensic uh, evidence, which we debunked in our show, and rightly so. She had two perfectly symmetrical spiral fractures from the sterilizers, right? It was like a slam dunk uh, forensic pathology case. Um, so we also undid it. But but my point about that is the power of, of a show like The Fifth Estate to really do bad, as they did in the first story with Clayton Johnson, and then rectified as... I, I didn't do the first story, by the way. I did the second one. I didn't do the first one. Um, and then rectify it later shows the power that they have. And I feel that if they'd been not indoctrinated and ideologically driven like they are, clearly, they would have done amazing work on the Coot story and would have maybe affected an early release because they would have had whistleblowers and secret documents and everything. But they don't do that. They're just carrying the narrative, right? They're, and these are people, still people that I work with in my day, believe it or not, it was so long ago. Really good people. And I don't know how they are living with themselves. I, I really don't. It's a it's a very, very strange phenomenon for me. And if quite I, yeah, I don't know either. I don't know if, if the, I don't know if the Canadian media and these journalists feel bad. I don't think that they feel bad because no. they're not correcting themselves and they're not leaving the media. One of the things that I thought was interesting about the original media coverage and Tucker Carlson included a, some uh, clips from from this yeah was that they said that the coots four had been stockpiling weapons for a long time leading up to this but as i understand it the coots four had not been in touch at all until february 9th like these guys hadn't seen each other or been in contact at all is that right to, uh, tony olianik and jerry moran chris carbert and chris lyzak none of them knew each other chris lyzak and chris carbert were friends like they the said they were stockpiling weapons and plotting this for months. Um, oh, yeah. So th th this is the histrionics you get out of the Canadian media because they don't understand guns. They don't understand gun culture. Right. Um, yeah. People stockpile ammo because every time Justin Trudeau goes on TV and says, I'm going to ban you and take all your guns away, people buy more. Yeah. You can see this. You can follow it all through the Obama administration in the U.S. They make noise about... Um, more rules about guns and everyone starts buying more guns and ammo. Yeah. So like, yeah, pe people stockpile weapons and it's because you guys keep saying you're going to take them. And like, if you, another thing people didn't understand too, is there's like, there's bounties for coyotes in Alberta. People shoot um, prairie dogs because they dig holes in the ground that cattle fall into and break their hooves. There's just all kinds of reasons why people have guns and weapons yeah. in Alberta. And they, they made a big deal out of it. And again, the, the stage photo, a bunch of those guns didn't even belong to the guys that are the Coots 4. There was other mm. group. There was another organizing group there. 
Nine other people were arrested that were completely forgotten about, and a bunch of the guns belonged to them. It was a total non-starter. They were seized on a warrant that didn't stipulate guns, and it's gonna get they were gonna get thrown out of the trial anyway. So the whole thing is irrelevant. It just is. But we are programmed to think guns bad <laughs> immediately. That's yeah. the way the media does things. Um, something I, mean, I, something I wanted go, to just yeah. I, I have to go soon. Yeah, go but, ahead. Um, so Trish just said you know, the fifth estate would have like seriously done investigation and there would have been whistleblowers and stuff. Right. So yeah. a, a friend of mine said I should look into um, charges of conspiracy, right? Because those guys were charged with conspiracy yeah. murder, a police officer. Mm -hmm. There's another, there's a, another charge on the books, like a, a, a rule you're not supposed to break called conspiring. To, I think what, what was it called here? It's section 465 under uh what are what's this it's in the canadian law books here i'm looking i'm looking at the canadian legal information institute yeah um section seven and it says um right here section 465 sets out four separate conspiracy offenses a conspiracy to commit murder b conspiracy to prosecute someone for an alleged offense knowing that the person did not commit the offense. Mm. So we just had these guys um, conspiracy to murder charges vaporized. Mm. The crown's just like, nope, we're done with yeah, that now. Yeah, yeah. They knew from the beginning that what they were charging them with was hokum and that they had no evidence for it. The government, the, the crown prosecutor, Stephen Johnson, the RCMP, all of the government people involved with the Coots 4 guys are potentially guilty of breaking Section 465 under Canada's Criminal Code, conspiracy to prosecute someone for an alleged offense knowing that the person did not commit the offense. So this is something that the Fifth Estate in better times could bring up, yeah. especially if they had whistleblowers. Mm. And if we're going to have an investigation into what went on here, that's a question that needs to be pursued. Absolutely. And again, well, uh, with, yeah. with projection, they project out to us, right? The the, the elite yeah. class projects onto the working class. Yeah. They projected a charge of conspiracy that turned out to be nothing. They were, in fact, conspiring against them to get their boogeyman case closed. Emergency mm -hmm. Measures Act is legitimized. Yeah, no, I think that's really smart, Gord. Um, I mean, I do think we have to just for purposes of I don't know if it's fairness, but but it there is hypothetically they could have had some evidence that was bad or wrong evidence that they found out later was bad and wrong. I mean, they could argue that if they wanted to sue anybody for accusing them of never having evidence, they could argue that. Right. So we have to just leave that idea on the table. Can I, I just want to say one more thing uh, because Gord brought it to mind. Um, I think that this in part has been a war on, when we say class struggle, that's obvious, but I also think it's a war on working men, right? right. Um, and, I, and I think that, that, that Justin Trudeau kind of set the table with all of his rhetoric about misogyny and homophobia. And, and these, are, these are the guys that Hillary Clinton was like, you know, doing her little trip on with the basket of deplorables. It's the same group of people, mostly men. It's men that they go after. So when you talk, and, and what did Obama say? They cling to their guns and their God, right? So all of the charges and the things that happened around coots 
reflect this terrible kind of cultural hegemony against white working class men as these mm. kind of crazed, hating, armed to the teeth. Kind of thuggish. Like. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and I feel that that's really part of this too. Sorry, I just wanted to say that. Yeah, no. I And like I say, I, I feel that, you know, um, my original Twitter account was called Token Blue Collar Friend. You know, I'm, I'm married to a professional. <laughs> um, I've done a lot of traveling. And when you go places overseas, there's lots of professionals that travel because they have money. And I, I, I bump into lots of people who sort of like view the working class as like exotic zoo animals or yes, something. So that's like, true. Yeah. I get what you're saying. Yeah. We yeah. were talking before we started the stream, Gordon and I, about the perspective, you know, having left Canada um, and, you know, I still go back to Canada regularly to, to fight. You know, I did a bunch of gender identity events in the fall and in and, and the spring and connected with the freedom people. And I'm still very much obviously covering Canadian news and politics and issues and so yeah. on and so forth. But having left, you know, you really you have a whole different perspective. I mean, I left Canada because of what was happening in Canada because of the authoritarianism and I didn't want to get stuck there. I didn't want to get arrested. I was worried that I wouldn't be able to work if I stay here, despite some fucking middle-class people on the internet being like, you left Canada, you're just like vacationing in Mexico. And it's like, I just, I work more than ever here, but okay. Yeah. Anyway, that's escaping the gulag. Yeah. Like, it's like, I don't, I can do, I feel safer doing my work here than there. And, but I go back all the time and I think that it's interesting because Gord also has left Canada and he's in the U S yeah. and you really, yeah. really, yeah. really do see, first of all, the truth about what's happening in Canada, but you see how other people perceive Canada, which yeah. is not like, you know, Canada has become such a joke throughout the world. Uh -huh. Well, I hear it on the show all the time. I mean, Rogan won't people. go to Canada. He won't do the UFC. There was a fight. There, there was the UFC went to Vancouver, and he, and won't, he won't go. go? Well, no, yeah. no. No, I hear it from people all over the world. I mean, they, everybody has something to say about what a crappy country this is. I can't leave. I, I, I used to make jokes at the height of COVIDian times about wanting to move to Texas and buying a Lincoln Navigator. I'm putting a gun rack on the back. Like I really felt like I had to kind of declare my inner MAGA, right? To because I was just I was like the public. I, health... I started. I got trained. To, I'm I'm learning how to shoot since COVID. Yeah, right. I mean, <laughs> I, I want to get a gun. My husband thinks it's a terrible idea, but 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 it's like we want to reject the hall monitor people. I never liked them in school. I was always a bad actor and misspent my youth and didn't like the rat finks in school and public health always felt a little bit that way to me. And, and in the worst possible way, right. Snitch out your friends, call the police on your family. If they have to be people over, I was like, I can't live this way, but I can't leave because my husband has two small businesses here. I mean, that's a, so. that's a different class mentality too. I mean, the upper classes are very much more invested in social status than the working class. I yeah. there's data that shows as much. Um, yeah. I know that Gord has to get going. So I just want to talk about the other two guys who are still in in prison before you got to get out of here um right. what what next so yeah. um there's going to be another hearing um uh, the hearings this week were adjourned to february 20th and we're going to find out what's happening with tony olianek and chris carbert i'm not sure why carbert got delayed and wasn't offered uh, a similar deal uh, might have to do with the lawyer representing him because I think, like I say, part of the reasoning here is that um, Morin and Lysak got some better representation, some specialists that were going to disembowel 
the government's narrative about them. Yeah. And I don't know if Chris Carver was included in that, although there has been some discussion about those two lawyers moving over to the other two guys and helping with them. I don't know. This is all speculation. I do know that there's a lot of people online saying, you know, uh, this person ratted out those guys or this is all suspicious. All of that is purely speculatory BS. And we need people to remember that the enemy here is the crown, not each other. And all of that stuff is rumors. And these two guys just spent two years away from their families. So like, take into consideration the context and their mental state and let's keep our eyes focused on who the real bad guys are here. And that is the government. And hopefully in another week and a half, when we resume pretrial hearings, um, we'll see some positive developments for Tony and Chris. Do you too think that there is a reckoning coming from Trudeau? I mean, I don't think that he'll win another election. I think Pierre Polyevre is doing quite well um, and people are getting sick of all this. But I mean, do you think that it seems to me like he's being held accountable in that, you know, first of all, the court ruling around the Emergencies Act. And now yeah. that finally this coot story is coming out and people are really seeing how he operates if they didn't already at least. Yeah. I, well, the Mosley decision is not that critical of Trudeau. In fact, you know, he, he was, he was a little bit critical of the convoy itself. So, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't, no one ever pays a price these days, do they? I mean, Fauci is still walking around, not in handcuffs for crying out loud. Mm -hmm. Pfizer is, I mean, oh, yeah. I, I don't, you know, there's, I, I hate to keep kind of repeating myself, but as long as the media is not prepared to bang the drum, there won't be action because, you know, politicians respond to what's on the national agenda and the media puts stuff on the national agenda. We don't particularly, you know, so I, I you know, will there be a commission? Sure. Sure. There's a million commissions. Commissions never find anybody guilty all the way from the Warren Commission, 9-11, Rouleau. They never do. So there'll be hearings and people will be under oath and we might learn some stuff. But um I think he'll walk away with a big job somewhere in a big bank account. That's what will happen. But that's me. I'm cynical today. Maybe tomorrow I won't be, but I am right now. What do you think, Gord? Um, we live in a world where Robespierre and Pinochet need to make a comeback. How's that for an answer? <laughs> Just for these guys. Targeted, very specific. Anyway, yeah. thank, I, I got to go put my kids okay. to bed. Thank you for having me on. Thanks so much for joining. And thanks, yeah, Gord. Thanks for all your coverage. And, and Talk we'll be to you in soon. Touch. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it's been a pleasure, guys. And thank you. And thank you oh. for caring about your country and caring about these men when so many other people would just forget about them. Yeah. So, and everyone who missed this at the beginning, um, Gord is on Substack at Autonomous Truckers. His podcast yeah. is Voice of Gord. And he's been covering this story, the Coots 4 story over at... Newsweek, thanks to I'm Batia, getting called by wonderful. one of the two men that's still in jail right now. Oh, okay. Would you believe it? Hold on one sec. Amazing. Check this out. Put him on. Let's ask him some questions. Tony Olenek. It's probably a collect call, right? They have to call collect from prison, mm -hmm. don't they? Crazy timing. Yeah. Tony. Tony, I'm doing good. Um, I'm actually on a YouTube show with a young lady um, named Megan Murphy and another young lady named Trish Wood. 
And we're talking about you guys right now, live on YouTube and Twitter. We're rooting for you, Tony. Here, um, say, say hello to uh, Canada and various freedom lovers. I can't hear him. Oh, there. It's an amazing journey we've been all on together, and there's good things coming real shortly down the path here. So we'll just keep holding the line and, and standing for our brothers and sisters and God's great glory. Thank you, guys. Oh, God's Tony, so help. good to hear from you, and like positive to the last, eh? Yeah, good for oh, him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm uh, not giving up on this battle for sure because I know, I know our innocence is there and uh it's just a matter of uh just just holding on because i i think the system realizes it that they're the ones that are scrambling through the corners right now trying to uh trying to figure out what to do next so and i, I just know the truth will always win and it'll always come to me yeah can i ask you a question tony it's trish wood here um hold on tony um trish wants to ask you a question i'll relay it um, I'm just wondering if you were uplifted by the plea bargain deals that were made this week. The country seems to be uplifted by it. Were you? Are you are are you uplifted by the plea bargain deals uh, uh, reached for Jerry and Mr. Lysak? Yeah, I think it just again, it, like you mentioned, listening to your podcast there the other day, I heard it all. Uh, I think it's just what it's done. Is it ex it's just exposed the. Uh, you know, this craziness, this corruption of how can they drop all these the main charges, the main indictable charges, and, and, and give these guys, you know, real pathetic, low-grade charges that guys would never do jail time for the charges that they received. That's just like a maybe a, a fine and a little probation time, not, not two years in a remand facility. Like, that's equivalent to a federal, a federal yeah. penitentiary bit. And so I'm uplifted by it because it just proves the fact that, uh, you know, this whole thing is just a big game and it's a big trade uh, for them to just, for the system just to try to uh, smother us and silence us. And they would have been able to do it if it weren't for all the support that we got from all the wonderful patriots out there, you know, including the Americans. And I've had letters as far as the Netherlands and Colombia and London and Holland and Denmark, and so it's pretty, pretty impressive and pretty powerful, uh, you know, freedom movement, uh, how it's been, it's taking off right across the world. It started back in 2022, in late January. What a wonderful time. Yeah. Power to the people. Yeah. Um, any further questions, ladies? Well, just how's he holding up? Like, how's he keeping it together? He sounds pretty good. So how are you holding up, Tony? Um, I... I wrote a piece of my Substack here about you a little while ago, and I called it uh, Boethius in a Dump Truck" because you're always so positive, and you're marching forward and facing this adversity that you're involved in, but with like a, 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 an amount of grace and positive vibes that are extremely impressive. And I sort of tied your situation to some classics and literature about people who are imprisoned. And um, I, I think Trish and Megan see that as well. Mm -hmm, definitely. Yes. I totally, uh, I totally have, uh, there's, there's, you know, you have your ups and down days for sure. But for the most part, 
my spirits are really high. And like a lot of letters that I wrote to people, I tell them, and I mean this from my heart, I, I tell them I feel more free, even though I'm in behind these walls, than a lot of people who live their lives out there. Because I know in my heart where I stand spiritually, yeah. and I know what I stand for is pure righteousness. I have no regrets from my time in Coots and anything that's uh, you know happened all the way up to it and all the rallies I've been to and all the, the gatherings and peaceful protests that I attended in Okotoks and, and uh, all through and Lethbridge and all that when, uh, during the old mandates and lockdowns. Everything that I've seen with my own two eyes was uh, you know pure love and, and pure mm-hmm. unity. And uh, so I hold all those memories and I hold all that to my heart very, very strongly. And, and I know, so I just, I feel it. I feel, I smile every day. I, I sleep good for the most part. There's days, that, yeah, obviously that I have some issues, but that goes back to my, my gut health and the improper medication. Yeah. Uh, denial that I've been, well, been denied from, from Alberta Health Services. But uh, otherwise, for the most part, my spirits are really good and will remain strong. And it's, you know, it's interesting uh, talking to you guys right now doing this because I'm in, I got moved up in the, in the Lethbridge Remand Center. I'm in the old unit where Chris Wysak has been. So I'm talking on, on a phone that he used to talk to people on, you know. So mm. I feel humbled. I'm grateful with him and Jerry are out right now to be with their families. And, and uh, so I, God bless them. And I, I, I know the good patriots out there will continue to support those two gentlemen. They've been through a lot, and uh, they've got giant hearts, and they're wonderful people. So let's just make sure we, we don't forget about them either, and we don't forget about James Sowery. He's next door to me here. Um, I've told some inmates in here, you know, if they know any guys on that side of the unit, uh, you know, to give them a good, warm welcome and, and take care of them and look after them and make his time uh, easy because he's, standing for the same same reasons we all are for everybody's rights and freedoms so so yes and, and Chris Carver obviously he's next door to me too just down the hall and across there so and we know he's uh, we'll keep our prayers for him and, and for Betty and his family and, and uh, we're gonna just hold on here and see what happens coming up February 20th and we go back to uh, some more trial and uh, hopefully we get to uncover a little more stuff so it's going to be exciting i just yeah i just want to say to tony and to to chris also and you know thank you so much for your courage and your bravery and what's happened to you is i keep saying appalling it's just it's horrific and i hope that we can get this story out further and further and further and you all have so much support over here um i just you know i was <laughs> i was going to say something trudeau but I won't unless I get <laughs> literally banned from <laughs> YouTube. But man, like I can only imagine. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Me- Megan just wanted to say she's you know pulling for you and Chris, and she you know re- respects everything that's ha- you know um, you just oh man, I-, I wish I could connect my headphones to the phone. <laughs> This is so random. I had no idea you were going to call, right? So one of the one of the things about our one of the things about our relationship, Tony, is since I've been covering um, talking to you guys for all the Newsweek stuff, I'm sort of 
you call when you call. I never know when you're going to. There are these 20 minute little phone calls. And I basically, whenever you call, I drop everything I'm doing because it's sort of at, you know, your guy's leisure and the, you know, whatever your situation is any given day in the remand centers you're at. Right. Can we ask what? Yeah, it's a nice surprise. I'm glad it worked out. Uh, it's nice to be able to catch you on a live show, and I'm, I'm grateful to, to have the wonderful ladies there share share our voice and, uh, and share the awareness, spread the awareness, tell our story. And I mean, it's uh, wonderful. It's wonderful to see. And I mean, it's what I experienced. Uh, like I said, includes their. I heard in the re- reading in the disclosure report there was over sixty-five thousand people that uh, the authorities said had came in and around Milk River. And see, Milk River was the other town just north of Coots, and that's where that's where the big uh, there's a giant pile of people there that came there to celebrate. They were trying to come down to us, but it was the authorities that blocked the road, and they had that whole highway closed off, right? after day one and so they're the ones blockading the road to prevent canadians from traveling freely on canadian soil to come down and visit us down there they're saying we blocked the road well there was a big traffic jam yeah i have to say yes to that but then after a while oh we opened it up there was an open road path pathway right to the border it was free sailing. We had Cataliner trucks going in and out, so we weren't disturbing any critical utility routes or anything like that. But then when the authorities had blocked through the Milk River, the, the Border Patrol guys weren't getting any business because they were like, well, there's the road is blocked up ahead 20 kilometers north, so they're the ones that said the border shut down because we're going home. There's no point sitting here and turning, twist, you know, tootling their fingers and drinking coffee because there's uh, no one coming. So they're the ones that announced we're shutting the border down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's interesting how the stories get all mixed up, saying, oh, you know, these freedom guys went down there and blockaded a border and all this stuff. It's like, no, 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 no. It, uh, we know who really blocked the border, and then, then we know the CBSA guys are the guys that actually shut it down after the fact, because you know, why wouldn't they? Why would they keep it open on a whim that maybe the authorities will open up the road up ahead and let traffic come through? Hey, Tony, Me- Megan's got a question for you. I'm going to try and put the sure. phone up to my headphones here, and hopefully you can hear it. Let's try this out. Okay. Try it. Hi, Tony. Can you hear me? Hi. Oh, it's so great to hear from you. Um, Thank you so much for your courage. I think, I mean, what you've been through over the past two years is totally horrific. Um, And I'm so glad that we're getting the story out. And I, yeah, I just, I want to send you so much love. And I want to know what you want to say to Canadians in terms of both them supporting you and Chris and also in terms of you know fighting this authoritarianism that has come down upon Canada yeah I cut out a little bit there sorry I can just repeat maybe the last sentence sorry um I yeah I'm wondering what you what you want to tell Canadians in terms of how they can support you and Chris and also you know what you think that Canadian Canadians should be doing to to fight this authoritarianism that has 
taken over our country. You know, we're clearly not living in a democracy anymore over here. Uh, Absolutely. Thing, so, I think the, the number one thing that we need to continue to do is keep uniting. And, and there's so many communities that have sprouted up all over the country. We're getting all these, all these wonderful letters from so many people. And they're telling me that they've got, you know, 10 people here, a little 20-person community there, little, lots of little church groups all over the place. And that's what I keep saying to people. I'm like, keep standing up in your local areas because it starts in our own backyard. Like, we need to we need to get together and we need to start participating in, like we see, like, like we are doing. But we need to just kind of, you know, get more involved in standing for our children. That's one of my main concerns. And, and I see that. There's a big push against this this whole narrative that this, the system is trying to uh, implicate our children at young ages in schools and all that stuff, as we know. And yeah. We just keep pushing back at that. That's where it starts. And start at our local level. Start at our own municipalities or towns. Get involved in the mayors and the councils. And, and we see it. And we even see it taking place even in the bigger cities. Like right now in the city of Calgary, I see there's a huge petition being put out to get rid of the mayor. And I'm like, wow. And it's taking traction and people are getting involved and so I love it and that's how we need to deal with that and we need to just keep having these conversations and keep connecting our groups in North Battleford, Saskatchewan to somewhere down on on the mainland and somebody in Toronto over to somebody in Nova Scotia there's there's people everywhere right across the country right into the United States obviously that there's we need to that's another thing that I want to mention we need to connect with the January 6th families and, and their supporters and spread their awareness as well because they've been in there a lot longer than I have and American jails are I hear aren't as uh, nice as the Canadian ones so the more we can share that, yes, it's good and, and for uh, the way we can support Jerry and, and Chris right now is as you guys all know, you know, they've been out of work for two years and uh, suffering, I know they've been getting support but they still need to rebuild and get their lives back to going. Sadly, they, you know, they have these stupid charges that don't make any sense. So like I said, they shouldn't, uh, shouldn't have, this shouldn't even said it was time served because really no one would have had, that would have never been a charge. They never would have had yeah. jail time if it was anyone else. All the guys sitting with here, uh, all agree. And, uh, they never seen anything like that. They never seen charges that made that those guys, uh, pled to that would even, remotely relate to having a jail sentence. So now, sadly, it's a criminal record. So I hope it doesn't yeah. affect, um, you know, their, their careers. Uh, Jerry being a power lineman and working for NMAX, I believe, and uh, I hope, you know, he can still get his old job back. Now that he has uh, a good charge on his record, which, you know, he shouldn't. So I think we need to just keep making sure that uh, we're bringing awareness to that, that, you know, these it's still bogus. It's still stupid. As you all know, none of us would have been at any of these protests if again, the authoritarian government didn't unleash uh, tyranny and hell on us with uh, all the mandates and lockdowns and everything that we see coming down the pipe. And we would all just continue living our lives and doing our thing, but here we are. So that's what the, the reaction was. Moving on now down the road, we need to we need to just keep that in mind. And that's the big picture. That's what we're all still standing for. There's uh, our situation is, is, is helping 
football is the bigger picture behind the scenes, and we know how deep that goes. And I think once more people see it, which they are every day, and that's the beauty of the letters, and that I receive people telling me, wow, we got a bumper sticker on our car, somebody at Walmart honked their horn and came rolling up to us, rolled the window down and said, hey, what's that sticker you have on your car? Explain that. And I get letters like that every day. So every day I know we're waking somebody else up. And once those people are awake, you can, they can never go back to sleep. They never will stop seeing it. They'll, they'll be awake. And they'll be dreaming. So I think that's imperative that uh, we just keep doing that and keep having those conversations. The, the, the power of just words being said is more important than, than, than anything, really. It goes past even donations and helping out financially. I think more importantly, it's just making more people aware. That's for people. People vote with their dollars. So if they start seeing that this is the system they're, they're pumping their money into, maybe it's time that they'll stop They'll stop supporting the woke, wokeism corporations and businesses, and they'll start uh, watching how their money is spent. And that's that's the control right there. Is how do we stop feeding the beast that's using our resources against us? And uh, I think the more that people are aware of that, uh, the smarter they're going to be with their money, and the smarter they're going to uh, to be on who they uh, who they support and, and who they don't. So, and it, it goes back to the mandates when all that stuff was going on all the businesses that uh, were thrown by the rules and demanding you show your paperwork and wear your mask and all that stuff i mean we decided to just go and support the other businesses that were that were uh, opening their doors and welcoming us with open arms and uh they were suffering getting uh citations continuously by uh you know the health services so we were like, these are the people we need to support. That's our freedom family and our freedom community. Obviously, they're number one, but we could never forget if there's lots of them out there. There's lots of people now that have regret on what they did and what they felt about uh, pushing the mandates and stuff like that. So we got to embrace them and bring them back with open arms the minute they, they, uh, they want the they repent and want forgiveness. we got to be there to, to hold their hand and, and, and show them the way because... We need everybody, we need everyone that we can. We already are the majority, but a lot of the people are just, you know, still scared, still timid. But like our situation, I hope will will uh, will release that sense of fear that people have. That's the whole reason why. You have one minute remaining for this call. The system wanted to just use this as a fear tactic. Uh, fear, the acronym for that being false evidence appearing real. Oh, that's what they used uh, against us. But see, now their game is starting to fall apart. So that's the biggest thing. We live, we, we can't live in fear. And uh, God gave us a, a soul that's in, in life with power and love and uh, not fear. So anyways, I'm on the one minute mark, guys. But uh, I'm really grateful to be able to speak to you guys. Uh, God bless you all. I love you all. And, uh, we do this again. Yeah, what luck, Tony. Thanks for calling. Anytime, man, you know it, brother. You're right on. Thanks, brother. Mark. We'll talk to you later. Take Thanks, care, Tony. Tony. Right on. Whoa. Yeah. Um, that was really special. What an amazing was, man. I was out of left field. I had no idea he was going to call tonight. Very um, nice that he would do that. 
But uh, very, very auspicious given the circumstances and given that I'm talking to you guys and <laughs> yep. um, all of your audience out there. There you go. Live from Lethbridge, Tony Olianek, uh, the, the remaining three of, uh, three of the Coots, five as it were now because of James Sowery. Yeah, but, um, amazing. Uh, he's an I, amazing guy, and he's been like every time I've spoken with him, like super positive. They they didn't beat him down, you know. He's like uh, cool hand Luke. He's never letting them win, you know. <laughs> I yeah, and I mean his message. His message was so beautiful and and powerful. Um, and yeah, and I I just I mean, I when I met the freedom the freedom people when I was over on the island recently in the fall, I was just, I mean, they were so amazing and so loving and so calm and, you know, and those, these are the people now who are fighting for families, which was, you know, part of, part of Tony's message just now is to fight for families in Canada. And, and I'm, I'm so, I was just so happy to see that, they were they saw the connection and were taking on that fight and again like just so brave no fear you know we had we had when we you know i've been doing gender identity events for a really long time and it's really scary we're always threatened with violence these people you know i was chased down in san francisco i had to run from a group of like men in black um, and it's really scary. And we had the, the freedom movement. They're helping us with security. They were volunteering. They did so much organizing for us. And I just, yeah, I'm so, I, I was, I've been so inspired by the freedom movement and the truckers right from the beginning. And I love that it's still, it's still going strong. And I just saw over in Duncan, BC and Cowichan, which is where my, my family lives now, my sister, my brother-in-law and her kids, which is where we were doing some events in the summer that they, the um, tractors were out to to show solidarity with farmers, which I, is just it's an amazing movement. It's amazing what's going on in Canada right now, despite that there's so much wrong with Canada and so many bad things going on in Canada. Well, listen, I do have to go. Thank you so much for having me. And um, you know, hey, what what uh what luck that Tony called while I was on with you ladies. That's so good. Yeah, that was amazing. Thank you so much for joining, Gordon. Thanks, Dad, yeah, and thanks so. for yeah, not putting your daughter back. Uh, I think I still hear them. They'll be okay. okay. I'll, I'll say goodnight before they pass out. All Thank right, thanks, you. guys. Okay. Bye, thanks everyone. so much, Gordon. Bye. 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 Bye, Gordon. Talk to you soon. Wow, that was that amazing. Was yeah. So uh, there's something I want to just bring up here. That was really, really important in this document I have. Okay. So just getting back to the Coots Four mm -hmm. and the, and what happened. Um, this is a this is an article, the one I was reading from before. So I just want you to listen to this. This is how much this is what Rouleau said about the Coots Four when he, in his defense of the Emergencies Act. Um The fact that this situation was discovered and disrupted is a credit to law enforcement, wrote Rouleau. It was nevertheless clearly a situation that could reasonably be viewed as a meeting, as meeting the definition um, of a threat to the security of Canada, but that CSIS had not identified as such. Cabinet could reasonably consider that the risk of similar groups of politically or ideologically motivated violent actors could have been present at other protests, Rulo wrote. So 
They used the charges also to impugn the people in Ottawa because remember, the blockade was broken up and gone when they did the EA, right? Mm -hmm. So they were using it to go after the people in Ottawa. That's what happened. Terrible. That's interesting. I was thinking about, you know, when we were talking about the 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 gun charges and yeah. that, you know, one of the main accusations from the beginning was that these guys had been stockpiling guns and yeah. they showed these photos. You know, I was trying to remember when it was that Trudeau started threatening to take everyone's guns away and started trying to ban all these these hunting these firearms that were used for like hunting ducks and things like that do you remember when that was like i wondered if that no. was connected somehow maybe i don't know i mean it's, it's I, nothing nothing is off the table with these guys at this point so you know i, yeah. I wouldn't nothing would surprise me i think we could probably wrap this up i wonder is there anything else that you want to say about the the coots four and about i mean well, not in a detailed way, but I do, uh, I will just repeat, and maybe it's a good thing to end on, is the idea that we can't just let this end as, with these two as, oh, the Crown takes the charges off the table. We need mm -hmm. to know why they were filed, what evidence they had, and why they've removed them. And if they've removed them, was there ever enough there to begin with? And if there wasn't, then why did they do it? And we also need to know what communications happened between Ottawa in various offices and departments, including Lametti's and Lucky and everybody else, and uh, and maybe the PMO, and uh, and where the Coots people were being investigated. That we need to know those things because if there were direct conversations and orders about how to proceed on this from people in Ottawa, that is a very very big government-ending deal, and we need to know the answer to it. I don't know how we get it because these things. These commissions never work out, but those are the questions we must be asking. It's great that they're out, but why were they charged in the first place and why was the charge dropped? I mean, technically, we should be able to use FOIs, wouldn't you think? I mean, that seems easier said than done. I don't know. I'm, I'm sure, going to call but... Holly Doan about this. She's the best document getter in the business. Okay. So, yeah, I'll see what she says. Okay. Well, um, thank you so much for, for joining today, Trish. I love talking to you. And again, thank I really, you. I'm so grateful for your coverage of all this. I wouldn't have known about the Coots 4 or about Gord without your coverage. And now I also am aware of Mocha, who's been covering this all along, who I'll definitely try to get in touch with for an interview as well. I want to support his work and 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 let everyone know that you know he's been working tirelessly at this for quite a while now right and ray mcginnis who's been doing and ray mcginnis really right trish trish just yeah. tweeted an article by ray mcginnis that yeah. was excellent about this case yeah. um and yeah for those who are watching please like and subscribe uh, and go over to Trish's Substack. Uh, Trish's podcast is Trishwood is Critical. It's yeah, excellent. Yeah. She's covering stories in Canada that no one else is. Um, Trish is on Twitter at Wood Reporting. Um, what's your Substack? Trishwood is Critical. So just okay. Trishwood is Critical, and then it'll come up on Google Substack. This week we're doing a, um, well, tomorrow I'm going to be publishing a Substack about the use of sexual allegations as lawfare i.e the 83 million dollar judgment for e Jean carroll which is and and remember christine blasey ford as well for 
for uh, uh, Brett Kavanaugh. Two cases I, I thought were super dubious, but yeah, the second yeah. one for sure. I don't know what was the name. What was the first name that you said? E. Jean Carroll is the woman who uh, alleges that Trump raped her in a, Ber oh. in a dressing room at Bergdorf Goodman in the either late '80s or early '90s, and. It was a civil case, um, and she just won an $83 million judgment because he was saying mean things like trying to defend himself from what she'd said. But the jury didn't even find what she alleged. She said she'd been raped. They didn't find she'd been raped, but they found she'd been sexually abused. But she was saying she was raped. So how do you make that finding? I, I don't get it. But it was in New York. And so, you know, you could accuse Donald Trump of, of assassinating President Kennedy and they'd find him guilty and lock him away. So it's very, and as a woman, you're like me, Megan, you think women should tell the truth and not cheer stupid stuff. And it seems that a lot of women in the Democratic Party have been celebrating this. She was on Rachel Maddow's absurd show and they were cheering about how she was going to spend the money in a very girly kind of, you know, you go girl fashion. And I thought, wow, rape is supposed to be a really kind of solemn you know, thing. And it just, it's just been awful. So that's my feminists have turned feminism into a joke. It's just sad. Yeah. 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 And then this week on the show, I've got a guy on, um, cell phone addiction, but beyond what they normally say and about how it's playing into the global elites plan to control us and destroy us. It's a very, very oh, interesting. interesting story. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. I can't wait. Um, everyone go subscribe to Trisha's podcast and subscribe to her sub stack. And thank, thank you. you so much Thanks, for tuning Maggie. in. Love coming um, on your show. Yeah, yeah, I love having you and I just I love Gord so much. So thanks for introducing me and fuck I can't. I'm so happy that Tony called. That was Yeah, really, wow, that's just the greatest timing. thing ever. So I'll try to now, it makes that. it real, Thank doesn't it? Saying. Hearing his voice, right? It makes it real. It makes it what real. What a positive guy. Yeah. Yeah. Um and uh yeah, don't drink the Kool-Aid. <laughs> <laughs> Truth over tribe. That's my new slogan too. Truth over tribe. Bye. Have a great night. Bye. Thanks, Bye. Trish. I'm Megan Murphy, host of The Same Drugs. Thank you for tuning in. I produce and host this podcast all by myself and rely entirely on individual donors like you to sustain my work. This is all me and you, the listener. If you want to keep episodes free as well as free thinking, please consider signing up on Patreon at patreon.com slash Megan Murphy, subscribing on Substack at www.meganmurphy.ca or donating directly to support this podcast via PayPal at paypal.me slash the same drugs. Every little bit counts and ensures I can stay independent. Thank you so much for supporting Conversations Outside the Algorithm.